0: Never allow someone to be your priority while allowing yourself to be their option. My name is Andrea, and this is Adult Child. Welcome back to Adult Child, where we take a deep dive into the impact of growing up in a dysfunctional family. And today, we are diving deep with Kendra Allen. She is the face behind the popular Instagram account, your breakup bestie. Now, breakups, as we know, are not necessarily a time when an adult child thrives or is at the top of our game. In fact, We will do essentially anything to avoid a breakup. We will do whatever it takes to keep a shitty, unfulfilling, miserable relationship in order not to feel the intense feelings of abandonment that arise when a relationship ends. So Kendra is a relationship coach helping women survive, heal and thrive from breakups and helps them to do the work needed in order to not keep repeating these same dysfunctional relationship patterns. She is also a woman in recovery. So, she's going to be sharing with us about her journey to sobriety, but more importantly, about her romantic relationship history, which started off with a bang in an abusive and toxic relationship with a narcissist, which was followed by a series of unhealthy and painful relationships. And then her journey in success. And fixing her broken picker. And as Kendra so eloquently says during my conversation with her, that we are our picker. So fixing our picker means fixing us. Now, y'all have heard about my illustrious career of healthy romantic relationships. Let's see, we had Mr. You're Old Enough to Be My Dad, Ball Boy, Mr. Looks Great on Paper, Mr. This has to be the one, and of course, bride number one and Brian number two. But there is, however, one relationship I have yet to tell you about, and that is my very first relationship. So we've talked about how the relationship with our parents as children forms the template for all future relationships. And the same can be said about our first romantic relationship. Our first relationship can have a huge impact on all subsequent romantic relationships whether that's good or it's bad, it has an impact. and my first relationship, so this was the longest relationship I've ever been in. in some ways it was probably the healthiest relationship that I've been in, which is not saying much, especially considering there really was nothing healthy about this relationship um it was probably the most traumatic relationship that I've been in and it probably had the biggest impact on me out of any of my relationships. So if I'm you right now, I am saying, what the fuck, Andrea? We are on episode 29 and we are just now hearing about this. What the hell? I feel betrayed. I know. I know. You have every right to feel that way. I would be pissed off too. But let me explain why this is just coming up now. So as far as where this relationship is in my timeline, it started off like in middle school and then through high school. So this was my toxic shame episode and then my addiction episode. And there was just so much material in there that I need to cover. And there's quite a lot of material to cover in this relationship. So it needed its own episode. And I have just been waiting for the right opportunity, the right guest, the right topic to be able to share this gem of a story with you all. It's juicy. It's good. Or really, I guess I should set the bar low. It's, it's so-so. You might like it. You might not. Let's not get our hopes up, guys. <laughs> so, yes. Um, quickly, Patreon's up and running. Yes, I'm going to talk about it again. Please help a girl out. Sign up. Help me out. Help me reach more adult children. Go to adultchild.com slash Patreon. I'm giving you exclusive content. I'm going to be hosting live virtual events. Don't have FOMO. You don't need to have FOMO. You just need to head on over and sign up for Adult Child Patreon and do your good service to the world. If you don't want to sign up for Patreon, but you still want to help a girl out, you can head over to buymeacoffee.com/slash adult child. You can make a donation there. It could be anonymous. You can do whatever the hell you want to do. And of course, one way to support me that doesn't cost any money is to give me a damn five star rating on Apple Podcasts. If you would please. Um, really quickly, I just want to shout out the people that have signed up for Patreon since last week. So, thank you to Lori, Sarah, Mark, Bianca, Michelle, Colleen, Adela, Andrew, Marie, Lindsay, Christy, Sabina, Shayna, and Kimberly. Y'all are the shit. So, without further ado, let's take a trip back to 2002.
1: the future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly but then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about that's why we've created the hefty renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at HeftyRenew.com.
0: Okay, so let's set the stage. It is February 2002. I am in the 7th grade. The blowjob incident has occurred a few months prior For any new listeners, I highly recommend, you obviously can start wherever the hell you want, but I do recommend going and listening to like the first, I don't know, eight episodes because it does kind of go through my life and my story, and I just think it'll make for more pleasant listening in subsequent episodes. So 2002, seventh grade, blowjob incident has happened a few months prior, and at this point, I had been deemed the school slut. I was the girl that no one wanted to be friends with, and I was the girl that no one was allowed to be friends with. So I meet John on AOL. I was Peach7Girl, and he was Man 10443 capital D-A, capital M-A-N, 10443. Now, John was in the ninth grade at a different school, and I was going to buy weed from him, somebody that I knew. John was his dealer. And he introduced me to him. Now, I had never smoked weed at this point, guys, but I told everyone that I did smoke weed, specifically older boys, because I thought it made me cool and I did very much want to smoke. I just hadn't been given the chance. So I'm introduced to John and we're chatting it up on the AOL. And at first it is strictly business. I'm going to buy weed from him. But at a certain point, it changed to being flirtatious and romantic. So we were going to hang out and I asked my mom if I could hang out with him and she said no because he was in high school and I was still in middle school. And so that is the end of my story with John and now it is my turn to introduce Kendra. No, I'm just kidding. Wouldn't that be super lame if that was the end of the story? (laughs) So my mom says no um, and I don't take that as an answer. So John and I start sneaking out in the middle of the night in order to hang out. Uh, Sometimes he would pick me up in his sister's car, even though he was only 15 and didn't have a driver's license. Other times I would just walk to his house. It was about a 15 minute walk from my house and sneak into his bedroom window, which was on the first floor. So we would hang out. We'd stay out until like four or five in the morning. This is when I finally got to smoke weed. The first time, I remember being so nervous that he was going to be able to tell that I had never smoked wheat before. Um, but the first time I smoked, I didn't get high. The second time I did. And God, did I fucking love it. Can we all reminisce on the first time that we ever got stoned? Was not that not like the best experience ever? It was for me, at least. And this was also when I lost my virginity. I was 13. And this relationship was truly my reprieve from what I was experiencing in school. It made the experience of being ostracized somewhat tolerable. And it somehow allowed me to project this image to my classmates and to everyone in the school that was harassing me on a daily basis that I didn't give a shit. I didn't give a shit that nobody liked me. I didn't give a shit that I was a school slut. I had found the keys to the kingdom which were marijuana and John, and nothing else mattered. It was all I cared about. It was all I thought about. So after about two months of this, of sneaking out in the middle of the night, my parents found out. Uh, They came to me one day and they told me that somebody had seen me at the 7-Eleven at three o'clock in the morning, but they refused to tell me who it was. And actually, I didn't even know who it was until just recently, a few months ago. So this is, what, this is almost 20 years ago. So I was talking to my psychiatrist that I had. I had this one psychiatrist that I saw from the age of 12 to 18. And she was also like a therapist. I saw her literally once a week for 45 minutes for like six years. And so I reached out to her back in, I guess it was June or July. I wanted to tell her about the podcast and just kind of catch up. Uh, cause she had been such a big part of my life for such a long time and let her know how I was doing and see how she was doing. And she told me, I guess I had told her in session thinking that it was confidential that I was sneaking out in the middle of the night. And I guess she was so scared at the thought of, you know, my 12, 13 year old self out in the middle of the night walking around that she felt like that was, you know, a danger. And so she was the one that told my parents. So just cracked that case just recently, guys. So my parents put a security system on the house to keep me in and not to keep people out. And at first, I think it was just on the doors. And then I think I started going out the kitchen window and then eventually they caught on to that. And so then they put motion detectors, sensors in the kitchen. And I remember trying to take the batteries out of the motion sensors and I couldn't figure it out. So I wasn't throwing in the towel, guys. I was willing to go to any length. So one night I decided to go out my bathroom window. Mind you, it was on the second floor and literally like there was no way that I was going to be able to get back in there. So I don't know what I was thinking. It obviously didn't matter. I had to sneak out. My life depended on it. So I go out the window. I land on the driveway. I cut myself all up. My hands are bleeding. I remember. And I just start walking to John's house like a good little soldier. And so I get over to John's, I climb in through the window, I'm in his bedroom, and it's only a few min- minutes after being there that the phone starts ringing. And I knew, I knew it was my parents. I guess when I had initially asked my mom if I could hang out with him, I must have told her his name. So she knew his name, she looked him up, their address up in the phone book, and so I hear the phone ring, and then seconds after that, I hear loud footsteps in the hallway coming towards John's room and I am like crouched in the corner like underneath the bed and his dad opens up the door and he sees me crouching down on the floor and he starts yelling "Get the fuck out of my house!" <laughs> Quite traumatic and I I remember his dad made me stand outside in the garage <laughs> while my parents came to pick me up and both my mom and my dad came And I just remember being in the backseat of the car on that drive home and my dad yelling at me. And I remember taunting him and being like, why don't you hit me? Why don't you hit me? And I remember him saying to me, maybe I should have hit you and you would have turned out better than you are. (sighs) So John and I didn't have contact after that. uh, I didn't have a cell phone. He did have a cell phone. It was taken away. I wasn't allowed to go on AOL, and there was really no way that we could get into contact with each other. And after this, things were just really on the up and up for me. Just a few months after this happened, I was kicked out of the private school that I went to, or rather I was asked not to return the following year. I started at public school and um, was sent to, to rehab that year, so then I became Rehab Girl so now we're gonna take a hop, skip, and a jump to the fall of two thousand and three.. I got everything you need. I promise I ain't gonna hold out neither. I'm gonna give it all to you, baby. Sword bomb. Baby, if you give it to me,
1: I'll give it to you. I know
0: what you want. So now it is the fall of two thousand and three. My freshman year of high school and to set the stage a little bit here. So when I got out of treatment in the eighth grade for the first six months or so, I was on a very, very tight leash. I was getting drug tested on a weekly basis and my parents pretty much didn't let me go anywhere by myself. But by the time I got to high school, I had most of my freedom back So I'm going to read you something. So when I first got sober, my first sponsor had me write a timeline. And so I still have it. And so I want to read to you what I said about the beginning of my freshman year of high school, because it's kind of funny and it's kind of embarrassing. So I'm doing this for entertainment purposes for you all. So here we go. I started school at Herodon High School. I had more freedom. I got a cell phone. There were older boys, senior boys at that. My goal since the 7th grade was to go to the senior prom as a freshman. Some of the popular senior boys were interested in me and would come and watch me play volleyball. Most likely to watch me in my spandex shorts. Okay, Andrea. I started to like this one guy in particular, Andrew E., but nothing really happened with that. I started hanging out with this girl, Brianna, who was on my volleyball team. I wanted to hang out with her because she said she smoked pot, but she didn't drink. The first time we hung out, I slept over at her house. We snuck out and met a boy that I had recently met who said he had weed. Brianna had a bad reaction to the weed and pretty much couldn't walk or talk. It was like the weed was laced, but it didn't affect anyone else like that. I thought maybe she didn't smoke as much as she said she did. Then the next time we hung out, we blazed again, this time in her bedroom. She took it easy and only took a couple of hits. We were sitting on her futon. She was fine one second, and then the next, she said, I'm going to bed, and literally just laid down and was out. Then a few minutes later, she started kicking her legs while she was still asleep. She knocked over the lamp. I was physically trying to restrain her legs, but I couldn't. So I sat her up and tried to give her some water. Next thing I know, she's puking all over the place and all over the bed that she had made for me on the floor that I was supposed to sleep in. Needless to say, that was the last time that we hung out. Okay, so 32-year-old Andrea is back now. So then in the beginning of November of that year, John and I reconnected. So I think as soon as I got my cell phone, which had been a few months before that, I called him immediately, probably drunk, and I didn't hear back from him until two months later. And I remember I was in South Bend, Indiana at a Florida State Notre Dame game. I remember that I had a bladder infection. Sorry if that's TMI, but I distinctly remember that. And so he called me while I was at the game and he asked to hang out. And so then the next day when we flew home, I lied to my mom and said I was going to meet up with a friend and met up with him instead. And this is how it went for the next several months. We would hang out. Uh, he would tell his parents whatever. They weren't really keeping tabs on him the way that my parents were. And I would always just tell him I was going to meet a friend at the movies or dinner. And they started to catch on because whenever they would drop me off or whenever they would pick me up, they would never see my friends. So we decide that we're going to tell our parents that we're seeing each other. And thankfully, they both were okay with it. So we start hanging out every single day. It was extremely codependent. Every day we'd hang out after school and we'd smoke weed. And on the weekends we would drink and we were just so in love and we had so much fun. We would just sit in his basement and get fucked up and watch the Chappelle show and play Tony Hawk Pro Skater 4. And my world was John. So... Then let's go to April. So it's about six months since we've been seeing each other again. And so I wake up one morning and I immediately called John as I did every single morning. And it went straight to voicemail. And I kept calling and I kept calling and it kept going directly to voicemail. And my mom eventually came into my room and she told me that John's mother had called her that morning and that in the middle of the night, John had been taken away by two men and taken to a wilderness program out in Idaho. So a week before this, John had been arrested for possession of alcohol by a minor. Thankfully, i had not been with him at the time, but this was the third or fourth time that he had been arrested within the last year or so. So his parents had arranged for him to be sent away. They didn't tell him because they thought that he would run away if he knew. And when my mom uttered those words to me, I felt that feeling. I felt that feeling that I've talked so much about, that feeling that I had as a little girl when I would wake up in the middle of the night and felt like I was going to die if I didn't sleep in my mom's bed. And this time that feeling was even more intense. And My mom told me that he was going to be gone for at least six weeks, but most likely a year. And I literally felt like my life was over. Not only was I so codependent on him, he was also my source of drugs and alcohol. And I would like to now just point out the connection of the fear that I had in romantic relationships in adulthood that I would be abandoned overnight that overnight, a guy would decide that he didn't like me, seemingly without any sort of warning. And so I know that that fear is very much rooted in this experience, among other experiences as well. So later that day, I go over to John's house to pick up some things that were there. And while I was there, his dad pulled up in John's car. So when he had been arrested the week prior, the police had impounded his car. And he had told me that The weed that he had on him at the time that he was arrested, that he had stuffed it in the like the upholstery of the sunroof. And we both assumed that the police would find it when they searched the car more thoroughly. And so I go into the car to get my sunglasses and I reach my hand up in the upholstery of the sunroof and they had not found it. And this was truly the biggest blessing my higher power could ever have given me. It was a godsend. So in the preceding months, this would be when I got arrested, the time I stuck the weed up my internal coin purse, if you remember, and then subsequently got sent to that boarding school. Thankfully, I was only there for a few months. So now let's fast forward to May of 2005. So The end of my sophomore year of high school, I am back at home. I am back in public school and John comes home. He has been gone for a full year and we pick up right where we left off. Smoking weed every day, drinking on the weekends and hanging out all the damn time. Now, while he was away, I had reconnected with my friends that I had completely ditched and bailed on when I started dating him when I was a freshman. And so as soon as John gets home, I once again just stop hanging out with them completely. So then towards the end of my junior of high school, we started hanging out with this group of people. They were his age. And so this is the time when I am becoming a pickle. This is when my alcoholism is progressing at rapid speed. This is when I start to become that sloppy ass mess monster every time I drank. And we would hang out with this group of people, and nine times out of 10, I would just be a hot ass mess and I would create some sort of scene. So, you guys remember the birthday party that I've told you about, where I got kicked out of the party. I immediately returned to the party and then got everyone arrested for underage drinking. So let me tell you a little bit more of that story. So at this point in time, I had caused quite a number of scenes. And so John told me that if I did one more thing, that he was going to break up with me. So I go to this birthday party. I do not adhere to the beer only rule. I get super fucking wasted. I get kicked out of the party. And so then I take the taxi right back to the party. And so this party, it was in an apartment that was above a diner. And so there was kind of like this roof patio thing going on. So I pull up in my taxi and what do I see? What do I see on the roof patio thing but John making out with another girl? Yeah. And I go into full rage mode. I don't know if I've ever had that much fucking adrenaline pumping through my veins. And I am trying to get up the stairs into this apartment, and everyone is holding me back. And I somehow managed to get to the top of the stairs. And I remember ripping John's shirt. And then I get kind of pushed down the stairs and kind of pushed out the door. And they close the door and they lock the door. And then moments later, the police arrive. And what do I do? I go, there's underage drinking going on in there. Yeah, that's what I said. So what would a normal sane person do in this situation? Well, they would say that to the police and then they would leave. But not Andrea. I just went on inside the apartment with the police and they're breathalyzing everyone. They're asking everyone for their IDs And then they finally realize at the end that I'm the only one that they haven't breathalyzed yet. And of course, I had the highest blood alcohol content out of everyone. So then about six of us get taken in police cars to the police station and arrested for underage drinking. Again, aren't you so bummed that you didn't have the opportunity to drink with me? So John breaks up with me, and I'm a mess. I am a fucking mess. And then about three weeks later, he reaches out and he says that he wants to get back together. Except this time, it's a little different. He only hangs out with me on Sundays and maybe once or twice during the week. And the rest of the time, on Friday and Saturday nights or any day that's significant, he would be hanging out with this group of people who clearly were not fans of me. And in fact, he did not want them to know that he was back together with me. And that became a recurring theme in relationships, right, where guys would keep me a secret, where guys would keep me completely compartmentalized from the rest of their life. And it just ingrained this belief in me that I was unworthy, that I was something to be ashamed of, That there was nothing to be proud of that I was your girlfriend. And this just resulted in me willing to accept mirror crumbs because not only was that all that I could get, that was what deep down inside I thought was the best that I deserved. So now it's time for Andrea to find some friends. And so I reach out to my old friends that I had ditched twice for John and they wanted nothing to do with me. And so then I try to make new friends and it really would only take people one or two times of hanging out with me to realize that I'm not somebody that you want to be friends with. And I found myself yet again, the girl that no one wants to be friends with. And I was either at home drinking alone or sometimes I would just go out and meet random people and hang out with them and drink with them. And I don't know how nothing horrible ever happened, but thank the good Lord, nothing horrible ever happened. And this just fueled my alcoholism so, so much. And this just further intensified the toxic shame that I felt within. It just further intensified this belief that I was shame. I hated myself, but I didn't know it. Consciously, I still did not realize that alcohol was my problem. I just told myself that the blowjob incident and things that had happened after that, that that had just tarnished me. And that once I went off to college, that things would be different, that I would have a fresh start and that people would like me and people would want to be my friend and I would have cool things to do. And as we know, that was not the case so when i went off to college john and i stayed in contact for quite a while we probably talked every day for like the first year and then slowly over time uh like when i started to get sober our communication just slowly waned and now him and i probably connect every year or so it's fun to reminisce about this but let's just talk about the impact of this relationship right this is my first real relationship And so this first template of a romantic relationship was this extremely codependent relationship that ingrained in me this belief that I was going to be abandoned overnight without any sort of warning and that I was unworthy, that I was something to be ashamed of, that I was something that would be kept a secret because it was shameful for me to be your girlfriend. (sighs) So yeah it's just been it's been interesting in therapy just really diving into all this stuff I didn't realize how truly impactful and how traumatic this relationship was so was that worth the wait guys I hope you enjoyed that story let me know what you thought I also would love to hear about your first relationships so hit a girl up and now let's talk to Kendra Allen. You know I got it, baby. If you give it to me, I'll give it to you as long as you want. You know I got Well, it is my pleasure to introduce Kendra Allen. She is the face behind your breakup bestie. She also has a wonderful podcast, Heal Your Heartbreak and she's also a former shit show. Um, and she's also a survivor of broken picker syndrome as well. So welcome to the pod. I feel like I have so many, yes, I have so many qualifications. (laughs) (laughs) Broken picker syndrome is rough. Yes.
1: Yes. Um, well, thank you for having me. I'm so excited to talk about this.
0: Of course. That's so much to talk with you about. So I definitely want to dive into relationship stuff, but I guess first, do you want to just talk a little bit about, so you're in recovery. So do you want to talk about your journey to to sobriety? Yeah, for sure. Um,
1: So I have been sober since January 7th, 2013, coming up on nine years and I got sober. You know, what's so funny is to me, when I got sober, I was like, I am the youngest person to ever get sober, but I was 21. So I like, you know, and now I feel like I have so many friends I got sober at like 17 and wow, younger I'm than was that. sober at 19. So, yeah. Yeah. But when I when it happened, I was like, I'm the only 21 year old who has ever gotten sober in the world. Um, so I, you know, I I I was long story short, I was a blackout drinker starting at I started drinking at 15, was like full-blown blacking out 75% of the time I drank drink. By the time I was probably 16 and a half, uh, I was definitely a former shit show. Um, a lot of, you know, I remember like the first t- time I heard the term incomprehensible demoralization when I was in a meeting, like it felt like I got stabbed in the stomach because I'd never heard that term before, but I like viscerally knew what it meant. Um, but, you know, I was the girl that... Ended up in hospitals and car crashes and lots of stitches and concussions. And like, I was very, I was like a very physical drinker is probably the best way I could put it. Bruises, stitches, knocked my teeth out once, um, stuff like that. And, you know, I, I mean, there are so many different layers to what got me, to get sober, but I got sober when I was 21. And it was like, it was totally like um, a ra- very small, rare moment of clarity. Like it wasn't after a hospitalization, it was just waking up from another blackout and realizing it was finally the point where I was like, I think alcohol is the problem because the, I spent so long defending alcohol. Um, I would point to quite possibly anything else aside from alcohol. And January seventh, it was like so clear to me. Like, oh my god, it's alcohol, and I think I I had gotten to a place where I I felt like I was so disconnected from who I actually was, and I was acting in a way that was so far from who I knew I really was. Like I was, you know, being the other woman in like close friend relationships. I was stealing shit, stealing money from parents, stealing from stores. I was just so far gone, um, and to me, the time, like when I realized I was an alcoholic, it was actually like the biggest relief because Mm -hmm. I realized I'm not just a super shitty person. I actually have like a sickness and, um, that's kind of in a nutshell. So is it in your family? You know, it's so funny. Um, it's not with my parents. My, Mm -hmm. um, my dad is, I've probably seen him drink maybe twice in my whole life. And my mom's like, I describe her as like the one and a half white wine spritzer kind of a lady. Mm -hmm. Uh, (laughs) And I actually like enjoy when she has three glasses of wine because it's funny, but I definitely have it in my family. I have siblings that, that have it um, like cousins. And it's funny. My mom, I never really knew my grandpa. My parents are older, so I didn't really know my grandparents, but I think my grandparents had some stuff, so it's, it's sprinkled throughout. It was never talked about. So I felt very like when you asked, if you would have asked me when I first got sober, I would have been like, I'm the only one in the family that has it. And then as I got older, it was either, they were actually alcoholics. They had ism like everyone just, I just started realizing how many isms there were in the family.
0: So then when you got sober, so you started going to meetings and was that like your first time being exposed to any of that stuff? Like, what did you know about alcoholism?
1: Yeah. So I think what I, that was not my first time at a meeting. I started going to meetings for like a program I was enrolled in, um, when I was 17 and I happened to have like a friend who was dating a secretary and he would sign my card like halfway through and I would leave. And And really was like, so cool for you guys that you guys have this place that you can go, (laughs) not for me, you know, but I was like, I was like, this is great that you guys have this place. You can share stories. Um, I think my, I think I definitely grew up with the, the idea that an alcoholic was uh, the drinking under the bridge out of the brown paper bag, like that whole thing. And my best friend growing up, her mom was a pretty gnarly alcoholic um, pill addict and you know my best friend and her brother were like taken from their house. CPS was involved, foster care stuff. So that was like the only person that I was. This is a confirmed alcoholic in my life, and this is the those are the consequences. Um, me at 21, like was not having children. None of that stuff was happening. So, so for me, it was very much like thinking I'm not, I'm not one of you. I'm not, I'm just not one of you. Um, and the reason. The first meeting I went to on January seventh was so powerful. Was I was so broken down, and I I go to a meeting, and I go to like a noon meeting in an area that there were a lot of homeless people in this meeting. I joke that there was like literally a guy wearing like pilot goggles and like a pilot hat talking to himself. That was Um, me actually. And I, yeah, (laughs) (laughs) what you do look so familiar. Um, And I was like, fuck, I relate. I relate to. Everything they're saying. And I I was like, it had to have been that extreme to relate for me to
0: fully get it at that point. And so did you adhere to the uh no dating in the first year suggestion? Oh my gosh, so funny.
1: Uh, yeah, so no, I I when I tell you I didn't last a week, like I didn't last a week. Um (laughs) I so I think right before I got sober, uh, this guy who I used to hang out with drinking kind of had like resurfaced in my life and he had asked me to come over and I did like an outpatient treatment program. Cause I was still in, I was still going to college and he lived right by my outpatient. And I was like, okay, I'll just come over right after outpatient, whatever. So we start hanging out and it gets really intense really quickly. And I think like a week into hanging out, he was like, oh, me and my friends are doing a booze cruise this weekend. And I had to be like, "Eh, I'm actually in treatment (laughs) and all this stuff. And he was like, no problem at all. I'll stop drinking. And I'm like, cool. Um, and that turned into like a month in. he wants to move in. He's basically moved in, but like wants to leave, cut his lease to move in. So we're together for like three months. My parents are just like delighted they they're delighted by anything I'm doing sober. They're like, I think my mom was like, when's he going to move in? Because she was just so excited that I was sober and that I was with someone who wasn't a bad influence. So, you know, I'm with him for like three months, end up breaking up with him. He got engaged like two months later, like this guy just needed to be in a relationship. And then I start dating someone in program. He moves in after like a month, um, my first sponsor called me a pound, like yes. the dog pound, cause I would just <laughs> have people move in. Um, so I was with him for a few months. He broke up with me while we were living together and I let him live with me for like another three, four weeks. Of um, of course in hopes so in hopes that he's going to realize hope, yeah. that he can't live without you. Of course, of course. And I can't be like rude and kick him out. Yeah. Sleeping um,
0: in the same bed still.
1: Of course. Of course. Yeah. Of course he was, you know, he was so respectful. He's like, I won't have sex with you. Um, and you're like, Please
0: have sex with me.
1: Yeah. And I'm like, come on, this is making it worse. So, um, Ugh. yeah. So I will say those two things happened in the beginning. I think I like went. I like, you know, I was like hooking up with people in the beginning. My like phase with that was very short. Thank goodness. Um, but I will say probably at about six five, six months, I was, I was single. It was so good for me. And I was celibate for seven, seven months. Um, I also hate the word celibate. I just don't know what other word to use. I didn't have sex for seven months and <laughs> it was so beneficial. And it actually like really allowed me to get my footing on my own in sobriety. So, um, so that's like the gist of my first year. The
0: first year. Yeah. Same with me. So I, I guess right around six or seven months sober, I started dating a guy where the age difference between us was more than my age. Okay. Yeah. (laughs) I was 20 and he was 45 and I want to puke when I think about, well, I want to puke when I think about all of my relationships, but Yeah. yeah, so I, we broke up like right after I celebrated a year and then I was single for a full year. And it truly, that was probably like the best year of my life, the happiest. Um, I don't know about for you, but for me, uh, thankfully I was never one that hopped from like one to the next. I would have significant periods of time in between just because it would take me for fucking, ever. it would take me like, like a year to get over a three week relationship. Um, But once I would get over like the initial heartbreak, I would be in my prime. Were you a hopper?
1: You know what, the, what I just explained, that's the only time I've actually, I mean, I had a situation, which maybe we can get to right before I am with the person that I married, um, which was like, it was a hop, but I will still, I'll stand by the fact that it was a healthy hop. Um, (laughs) (laughs) and, but that other than that, I was not a hopper. Like I didn't go, I wasn't in relationships in high school at all. Um, I was, I had the friends that are the serial monogamous. I'm not that person. I've never been that person. The thing that I always gravitate to is just like, I'm just always have to be doing something. Like I'm just always like a kind of a busybody. So if I'm not in a relationship, like I used to just throw myself into whatever I was in. If I was not throwing myself into a relationship, I was throwing myself into like work or program or, you know, Luckily, like there were some healthy things that I threw myself into, but, um, but yeah, that was more what it was. I just like, my whole thing has always been anxiety. I've really bad anxiety. It's gotten so much better. Um, but that's kind of my thing. I like have to have my hands in something. Otherwise I'm very uncomfortable. Mm
0: -hmm. So are you somebody that would lose yourself when, once you entered a relationship? Yeah. Like bad, really bad. I,
1: it was actually, I mean, it was, uh, I was, so I was in a relationship with a narcissist when I was 18. Um, I was 18. He was 30. And yeah, no, I, my life ceased to exist outside of him for three years. So I had that experience. And then, yeah, like I would like not talk to friends, um, change everything. Yeah. That was like my thing. I would like, I've always been really good at blending in to different friend groups. And in some ways it's great that I can do that. Um, but yeah, I would completely change how I dressed, the music I liked, the food I liked, depending on who I was with.
0: So I know in 2015 is the one you hit your real bottom related to this stuff, but yeah. I'd love for you to talk about that relationship. But before that, is there anything significant in that journey? Because for me, it I mean, I was getting sicker and sicker and sicker when it came to these issues and it was very much a progressive disease for me, much like my alcoholism was. So I'm curious if that was similar to your experience.
1: Yeah. Yeah. So, um, I think in relationships, I mean, I for sure have hit like a series, a series of bottoms for sure. But I think the thing is like, sometimes, sometimes it hits you later on. Yep that you've, whether it's like something has been unhealed or not dealt with. So it was like a combination of, I I went through a sexual assault when I was 16. I didn't, I didn't tell anyone until I got sober until I told my sponsor on my fourth step. And I didn't, I didn't even go through therapy on it for 10 years after. So not till I was like 26. And, you know, then I went through this highly abusive relationship for three years that again, didn't really talk about until I was a good ways into my sobriety. And was that your first real relationship? It was my first real relationship. Yeah. With this guy that was 10, 12 years older, so emotionally abusive, didn't even realize how bad it was till, till much later. Like, thank God I was able to get out. How were you able to get out? I like, I was, I think I was talking about this on another podcast, but, um, basically like he saved me from my drinking. He was super controlling. He knew my drinking was a fucking nightmare. So he, he like was very controlling and controlled my drinking. So he saved me from my drinking. And then my drinking ended up saving me from him. <laughs> I He's like, please start not- drinking again. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> so he basically told me like, you don't talk to anyone about your relationship. That's just, mm-hmm. and I'm like, I've never been in a relationship. He's older. He knows whatever. Um. So I, I didn't tell a soul what was going on within the relationship and there was a night where I was, I mean, I can't really call it a blackout because I kind of remember it. Brown out. Yeah. I was having a brownout on a family vacation and I was tanked and I told my family everything. Mm. And just hearing the words come out of my mouth was like, oh my God, this is so bad. And so that was kind of the journey to be able to start getting out of that relationship with him and I didn't realize how badly he had impacted my, um, self-worth, self-worth. Yeah. My self-worth, just my like, um, security with other people in relationships. Um, and what happened after that was I started falling into this pattern of being with people who were emotionally unavailable because he would, you know, he would tell me that, I'm lucky to be with him like that. I was not pretty. I was not smart. I was not capable. I thought I was a slut, like just awful words all the time, all the time. And I obviously started believing it at a certain point. So I started falling into this pattern of finding people who are emotionally unavailable. I was like the, what's the term? Like the conqueror. I always wanted to go after someone who I didn't think I could have, because I thought if I could get them, they, then I would be worthy. I would feel okay. So I would do that with like, I mean, I would do that in relationships. I would also just do that with, that's a hot guy. Like I want to hook up with them. So I would go into this like conqueror kind of mindset and try to go after them. And so The, the bottom I hit in 2015 was the third time I had gotten broken up with because the guy couldn't commit to me. Mm -hmm. So 2015 was when I dealt with pretty much everything at that point, the assault, the narcissistic relationship, the bad self-worth, all three of those relationships where the guy didn't want to commit to me were pretty much dealt with at that point.
0: And what did that look like? what did what did recovery look like for you
1: it it felt like getting sober again and what and what i mean by that i mean yeah there was like that discomfort but you know when you know when you like finally accept that you want to get sober and you just become a sponge and you're like i'll literally do anything i got that again and i i started going to meetings every day again I, I honestly like started racking my brain for like people that I had known that had gone through really bad breakups. And I started asking them to like go to a coffee. Literally the same thing I did when I got sober is like, how do you stay sober? I'm like, how do you recover from a, from a breakup? Um, I, I got into therapy. I just became a student. I started learning about attachment theory. Um, I actually really started learning about narcissism in relationships and was able to, to deal with that. Um, I started talking about the assault with therapists and then eventually was able to like, tell my parents about it. So I really just became a student all over again. I became a yes person where if like I started making new friends, like literally it was just getting sober around too. Mm
0: -hmm. Yeah. It was the same for me too. The pain I experienced related to this stuff was like so much more painful than when I gotten sober. Cause I was doing it all sober and just the amount of shame that I felt when you were talking about how you kept the secret from your family about how he was treating you. I mean, I would do that in sobriety. I didn't want to tell my friends what was actually going on because I knew that they wouldn't approve. And so when something bad would happen, I would tell them and when I'm in freak out mode, right. And I like need their help. And then what I would do is, Let's say I like caught the guy in a lie. And so I would tell them about it. And then so of course I have no plan on ever confronting the guy about whatever the issue is. So I would make up conversations with the guy with him giving me the perfect responses to tell my friends and my family so that they would be okay with me continuing to see them.
1: Yeah. No, and I've I've a hundred percent done that. The guy that I was with before, like the guy who broke up with me in 2015. I did that for like nine months. I would completely minimize the things that he was making it so crystal clear to me that he was not going to commit to me, but I had this story built up in my head and I would like build this story up and, and then I would, I couldn't handle the pain. So I would reach out to my friends and tell them the truth. And then a week later, I'd be like, we slept together and they're like, are you done? Are you done yet? And I'm like, No. I'm not. And it's like, I'm not going to lie to you at this point, but like, no, I'm not done. And so I've a hundred percent have done that in, in sobriety as well. And what you were talking about with like breakup bestie was born out of the fact of going through a breakup with nothing to take the edge off. You, I had to work so hard to get over that breakup because I had nothing else to turn to. And that's where breakup bestie you know, was born out of. And I remember taking off the things like, I, I remember the last one night stand I had was after that breakup, the guy left and I sobbed and I was like, shit, this doesn't work. It doesn't work. I, I, I was like, I didn't even feel good for 30 minutes after I just started sobbing because <laughs> it doesn't work. That's not how I can heal anymore. Like, you know, I don't want to say like I've evolved past something, but it's almost like, it's almost kind of the truth of like, I know that this is not going to work for me anymore.
0: How much of your therapy recovery work do you feel like was rooted in resolving trauma?
1: A lot. I mean, for sure, I a lot. I I wasn't able. I didn't. I couldn't get into trauma therapy until when did I start? Until I had it was the year before I got married. So um, until I had like five years, I started doing really gnarly EMDR therapy, mm-hmm. and I did that for two years. And I remember I cried after every session. I had to like do it on a day where I had nothing else to do. Cause I would just take therapy naps and, and cry for the rest of the day, but it was life changing. It was so what I needed and the therapy that I'm in, I still go to therapy. I don't do trauma therapy anymore. Cause it's like, I was really able to resolve it, but yeah. I mean, a good chunk of it was for sure.
0: Yeah. I think that that was also a part of me that the amount of shame that I had to get over was the fact that you know, I saw these other people that the 12 steps had basically fixed all of their problems. And so I felt like there was something wrong with me because that wasn't the case for me. But I really, I mean, therapy for me was the key in working through all of this shit and finding somebody who really understood it. Yeah,
1: and i it's interesting. I think my, my position on AA has changed so much over the years. I still go, I still believe in it 100%. I, I think I definitely used to be someone who thought like all I needed was the steps. It's a cure all. And the longer I've been around the more tolerant I have just become to other things that are needed. And like, I mean, once I get to a point where I'm sponsoring someone, like I'm not a fucking therapist. I can't tell you how to work through trauma. That's just not what we're equipped to do. Like, yeah, I can tell you what I did to stay sober, but I can't help you cure your trauma. So, I think the longer I've been in, the more I'm like, hey, we need other stuff. You need medication. You need therapy. We need a lot of stuff in order to feel okay. AA for me is still the foundation, but it's got it, it has to go beyond that.
0: Yeah, 100%. So, how long did you stay single after that happened?
1: So, I stayed single and seven months, eight, eight months. Okay. I stayed sober for eight, stayed sober, stayed single for eight months after that. I will tell you, it was like, aside from the, even actually, no, even with all the gnarly healing that I was doing, it was probably my favorite eight months Mm. of sobriety. It was so fun. It was so fun. I like found this group of girls. We had all gone through a breakup at the same time. We adventured like every weekend. I... Finally learned what it was like to enjoy being at home Mm -hmm. by myself, but like towards the end, it was like, oh, weekend of myself. And it was so nice and peaceful. I remember going on a family vacation and I was like, I can do whatever the fuck I want to do. I don't have to comfort a partner with my family and make sure they're feeling included and comfortable. I was like, I can just do whatever I want. And it was so liberating for me. And I, it was like, and I remember my sponsor saying, you're going to miss this. You're going to miss these times at a certain point. And I can confidently say that there are times I miss it.
0: I can also say 100% that there's never been a time that I've gone on a, a vacation with my family and said that this is very liberating and free and enjoyable. So lucky. You. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know what that experience is like.
1: (laughs) Yes. I mean, we have our, we have our stuff, but in that case, it felt very (laughs)
0: liberating. I'll live vicariously through you Yeah, and everyone else listening to the podcast right now. (laughs) Um, I can really measure my mental health by how I'm able to enjoy time alone at my apartment. That's a really, if, if I, if I'm enjoying that, If I truly enjoy time alone, that is when I know that I'm, I'm in a good spot when I'm spiritually fit. (laughs) Same.
1: No, I'm, I'm definitely, if I have a weekend with no plans, I could either be horrendously anxious still to this day, or I can be like, thank you. I'm so happy. And that's, yeah, it depends on how connected I am spiritually. So then when you started dating
0: after seven or eight months, was that with your current husband?
1: No. So this is, this is like a very. I'll probably throw like a few disclaimers in this story. Cause it, it is, it can get really misinterpreted. So no, I started dating. I started dating this guy who was in program. He was, he was great. When did you know that it was time that you were ready to start dating again? To me, it happened really naturally. I think I started going on dates on apps and I had some, I had some really bad experiences and I was, I was fine. It wasn't, that's what I tell people like picture your first date going horrendously wrong. Are you okay? And it's like, if you're okay, then that's great. You you're, you're totally good. If you go on a first date and it's horrible and you make that to mean you're not meant to be with anyone, but your ex, not a good time to start dating. So I had gone on these bad first dates and I was, it was like not no skin off my back. And the guy I started dating, it was very natural. He actually had shared at a meeting and his share was so good. I just like felt compelled to message him on Facebook and be like, Hey, I, your share was so good. It like really impacted me. And he asked me out and we started dating and it was the first time I felt so comfortable with myself. It was the first, like he had a, um, he had a kid from earlier on. And so I had the conversation with him of like, do you ever want to have more kids? Cause I, I was like, I'm done with the bullshit. Yep. Do you want to get married? Do you want to have kids? Not to me, but like, is this something, am I barking up the right tree? And I think that happened on like the second date that I was able to ask those questions, which is so unlike me, so unlike me. Um, and you know, I was able to have the conversation of like, you know what, I'm not ready to have sex unless we're exclusive. I was just able to draw these boundaries and it was because I was comfortable with myself. I didn't mind if I went back to being single because I liked it. So, you know, we get into this relationship, he's emotionally available. It's great. He's a super nice guy. There was just something missing. I will say in this relationship, I think I too heavily attached to the things that I had been burned by Mm -hmm. in the past that I ignored other things that were not a good fit such as, so, you know, like for example, he wasn't, he was so big on like his schedule and his things that he likes to do, which is great. I think everyone should have their own life, but he didn't really think that any of our stuff should blend together. If that makes sense. Like on Saturdays, he had like a very specific routine. So we had been together about nine months. And after nine months, I had a wedding to go to. And my ex's, the guy I was dating, his child was in town the weekend of the wedding. So he wasn't going to go. So I was going to go by myself. My ex who dumped me in 2015 was going to be at this wedding. And it was going to be the first time we like had any interaction since the day we broke up. We had not spoken, texted, social media, seen each other, nothing. So I go to this wedding. I'm nervous because it's weird seeing an ex. I don't care like how long it's been. It feels weird. And I decide when I get to the wedding and I had this in the back of my head. I was like, you know what? I want to make amends to him. Not like I really felt like I did anything wrong, but I basically just wanted to tell him I'm sorry for not hearing your truth basically if that makes sense, because he had made it—he had made it clear he didn't want to commit, and I kept trying to force it. So, um, so I made amends to him at this wedding, and it was fine. We just like had some small talk; it wasn't anything intense. Did he own his part at all? No. It was, well, so what happened was we were talking. I made my amends, and then they were like, "It's time to cut the cake." So we all left, and then we didn't talk after that. So three weeks later, I get an email from him while I'm at work, and I immediately panic. He asked if if I'd be open to getting coffee. I thought he was going to make amends. Like I was like, okay, he's going to make amends. And he was trying to sleep with you. (laughs) I did. I will say, I knew that wasn't the case. Like I knew that wasn't what he was into, but I thought maybe he's dying. I thought so many (laughs) different things like maybe he's super sick. He has like a terminal Mm. illness. Um, and so (laughs) But I told the guy I was with, I was like, I think my ex wants to make amends to me. He's in the program. So he gets it. He's like, okay, go ahead. So the next day I go to meet him for coffee. And like I said, long story short, Luke, Luke, it was the guy who dumped me in 2015. He had um, written me like a four page letter, basically saying that he had done all this work over the last year and a half. He had gotten to a place where he realized he really wanted to have kids and he really wanted to get married independent of me. And then he saw me at the wedding and realized that for him, he felt like first I was the person. one he was supposed to be with. This all happened at a Starbucks. I was so angry. I was so angry, like too little, too late. I had all these thoughts running through The first thing I said was like, I'm going to throw up. Cause I just was like, it was so shocking. Was there a part of you? This is what I've been waiting to hear. No, because I, you were over it. I was, I really had healed past it. Like I never, I was at a hundred percent peace knowing I would never see him again. That's why when people are like, well, how can you tell people not to get back with their ex when you got back together with yours? Cause spoiler alert, I, we got back together. That's who I'm married to. It is different because I had completely healed. I, I, I went into that thinking he was going to make amends or he was going to tell me he was sick and dying and never thought he would say he wanted to get back together. And I paused I said, I don't know if you're going to hear from me. Thank you for this letter. What did, I don't know what just happened. Thank you. You'll be hearing from me if you hear from me. And I left and I went on a, I happened to have a girl's trip that weekend, went away for three days, journaled my face off. I I'm not even kidding. When I, I called 25 people and told them the whole situation. (laughs) Of course. I read them the entire letter. I like basically called a conference. (laughs) <laughs> of, of the minds. And Luke was very smart. Cause he knows that's how I am. So he, he gave me that letter so I could be like, read this. And what happened day one of that weekend was I realized I was not supposed to be the guy with the guy that I was with. So I was like, no matter what I'm dumping this guy, because he's just not my person. And I'm, I focused way too much on the commitment and let go of anything else that I wanted. Mm-hmm. And then by the end of day three, I was like, I'm going to give this a shot because I knew I would never fall for the same thing again because I wasn't the same person anymore. So I knew I could get back with him in a way that if shit went wrong, I could walk away. I didn't feel like I didn't feel like I didn't have any control or power over my love life anymore because I had healed and I had fi- finally figured out a way to like myself single. And so I was like, "You know what? If it doesn't work out, it's fine." And so And, you know, and it ended up working out and now we're married and having a baby. So
0: that's a long story short of how I got married. That's amazing. I, um, (laughs) I've had, um, I've only had one guy come back around and say all the things that I wanted to hear, but he was still very much active in his alcoholisms, (laughs) but it was, uh, it was equally as, um, it was equally as powerful, similar to what you're saying that you knew that that you were not going to be hostage to the relationship if he hadn't changed. That and it was kind of the same thing for me too, was realizing that I had changed, was that finally I was hearing all the things I had always wanted every single guy to say to me, but it didn't matter because he was not my person. He was a very sick <laughs> and an alcoholic, but that showed me too yeah. that I had changed. I just been wanting somebody to say that to me my whole life, they love me and they can't live without me. And I didn't really fucking care who it was, you know? Yeah, no, my whole thing was like, if you liked me, I liked you. That was my thing
1: for a very long time. And I think the most empowering thing was that I was able to make that decision to get back together with him, not because I needed a relationship, not because I needed his validation, solely because I was able to look at the situation and think, except for the fact that he couldn't commit to me, we had a really healthy, we had a really great relationship. And another thing is the reason he broke up with me. Wasn't malicious. He was just like, You want to get married? I'm not going to be the one that can marry you. So I'm going to cut this off. And thank God he did, because I would have stayed in that for fucking forever. There have been so many times where it was like God doing for me what I couldn't do for myself, physically pulling a relationship
0: away from me because I never would have walked away. Oh my God. I just feel like this is like bad for people to hear though, because they're going to be like, Well, there is hope that I know that he can become emotionally inevitable one day this is not the norm guys. This is not the norm. (laughs) Yeah.
1: Let me give my, let me give my disclaimers. This is the exception to the rule. The reason it worked out is because I never thought I would see him again. Never thought if I would have waited for him Mm -hmm. that this would never have worked out. If I would have tried to stay friends with him, never would have worked out. If I had the slightest inkling of thought that we would ever get back together, it never would have worked out. And the funny thing is Luke, when he broke up with me, in his mind was like, maybe someday, but he never told that to me. And I'm so glad mm. he left me alone and I'm so glad he did. And so this was basically like, this was a new relationship. A hundred percent. We both needed that time. And so the only reason it worked out is because I never thought it would work out. What kind of work did he do on himself? So he had never been single for like more than I think six months in his whole life. He had never found himself content single. Um, mm -hmm. And he had to figure out what was blocking him from wanting to get married. And he realized it was because there were certain things in his life that he always thought he wanted to do. He always thought he wanted to like join a band. Like he just had these goals of like, I want to be in a rock band. I want to do this. And I want to do that. And he thought it was the person he was with's fault that he wasn't doing it. So he always blamed the person he was with for him not being able to live his life to the fullest. Mm. So he had to spend time on his own to realize it was him. He was the only person blocking himself from being able to do that. And he came to that conclusion by spending a lot of time by himself. He was like, I hiked every single weekend completely by myself, listening to audiobooks. He went to therapy. He's big on like self-help books, did a lot of writing. He did a lot of that. kind. Of, he did a lot of, he did a lot of the work, you know, even the way that he decided to get back together with me, like the day after the wedding, he woke up and was like, I want to get back together with Kendra. And he, he first waited two weeks to make sure the feeling wouldn't go away, that it wasn't just an impulse. He then went to therapy. He then kind of same thing called a conference of the minds of all of his close friends and shared with them what was going on. So he was just very thoughtful and he paused in that way.
0: And so then what did that look like when you, when you agreed to give us another try? Was there, I can't imagine that it was all easy breezy. I mean, I would imagine there was moments where you got triggered or fierce came in. Yeah. Yeah. There were stipulations for
1: sure of like waiting to have sex and like, Hey, this is what was wrong the last time we were together. If this is going to work, these things have to change. And what were those things? He was like half in half out. He always had one foot in one foot out. I remember the first time he went away on like a weekend trip for work. He, I was like, I don't want to feel weird calling you. And he's like, no, do not feel weird calling me. You are my girlfriend. You can text me and call me whenever you need to this weekend, because that's what it used to feel like Mm -hmm. when he would leave, he was like poof gone out of the universe I can still relate. I never wanted to text. Cause I didn't want to seem like that crazy ass girl. Same. Yeah. So I just wouldn't. And then I would just cry the whole weekend. Yeah, just- <laughs> um, so I was like, I can't feel like that. I need to feel safe to call you whenever I want to. And he's like, you are safe to call me whenever you want to. He also, my family is so important. We're just really close. And so he was like, I'd like to make amends to your dad. I want to sit down with your dad and I want to talk to them and I want to like clear things up. So he did that. He also gave me the opportunity to like really tell him how bad I was hurt after the breakup. Mm-hmm. I read him my journal entries, literally. I was like, this is what I felt after you broke up with me. And so it it didn't, he never tried to gloss over the fact that he completely broke my heart. So those things were were really really important. The biggest thing that the biggest hurdle that we hit was I, I was very different mm-hmm. in a lot of ways. Mm-hmm. I had all of a sudden I had boundaries, all of a sudden I had like a pretty good sense of self-worth. New phone who dis? Yeah, exactly. And so I was like thank God it worked out where he that wasn't he didn't fall for the person that had low self-worth. He fell for like me and And so that was the biggest thing was like, I'm like, oh no, I don't want to do that. Or no, I I don't want to eat there. Little simple things like that, where I would have said yes to anything before. So that was the biggest thing I think that we had to get over was him adjusting to me, like having a backbone.
0: (laughs) Wow. So then how long did y'all date
1: before you got married? We got married two years, two years after we got back together. That's awesome. It was. And like the thing... (laughs) I think if we're talking about the broken picker, let's, let's talk about the broken picker because I, the sponsor that I had during this whole time completely saved my life. Mm -hmm. Um, she took me through the steps on relationships and just always brought it back to me, always brought it back to me. And I remember she had me write down what I wanted in a relationship, like step two, what would a sane relationship look like to me? And I wrote that stuff down and it wasn't like, it, it, it wasn't about how can I go out and find that? It was like, how do you do that? She's like, your list of things you want in a relationship are now your to-do list. Mm -hmm. That's your to-do list. And I want you to write down every day, what you're doing to embody the kind of person you want to be with. Mm-hmm. And she never let me get away with just blaming my picker or, mm-hmm. cause she's like, it, it's not a, you don't have a picker. It's just, you are the picker. Yep, like exactly. you embody, you're embodying the person that is going to come to you. You attract what you promote. That was her big thing. You attract what you promote. You attract what you promote. And so she had me literally make a to-do list and every day I had to write down, okay, you want someone that's like this? You want someone who's good at communicating? Yeah. Go have that conversation with the person you've been putting off for a long period of time. Let's do that. And so it just always came back to me. And so I stopped trying to like manipulate situations to meet certain people. Or I, I stopped manipulating how I actually am to fit into someone else. It was just like... I am just going to learn how to be the best version of me. And then I'll just let whoever wants to come in, come in. And then whoever's supposed to go out, will go out. And that's, that's how it's going to work because the, the trying to handpick and manipulate is just not working.
0: Yeah. I could relate to that too. That was kind of a big realization I had when I hit my bottom to this stuff was just that I was waiting for you know, I was wanting to attract this certain type of person, but I was not emulating those qualities as well. And it was like, I wanted to attract this fulfilling relationship, but like, I didn't have a fulfilling life. And so that was like a large part of it was just um, realizing that, yeah, that I had to really create a life that's fulfilling and a life that I love in order for me to be able to attract that type of person, you know, just realizing that there was still more work to be done on me before I was going to be ready to attract what it was that I wanted.
1: Yeah. And I, and I had to go through all of that of like, what's, what's my part in all this? How can I expect someone to to love me for who I am? If I don't love myself for who I am, how can I expect someone to treat me with respect when I don't treat myself with respect? It, it literally all comes down to me. Mm -hmm. And I think sometimes, and I have a, sometimes I have a hard time explaining this on my page just because people aren't familiar with the concept of the program, but I try to tell people like, it's not to bash yourself. It's actually, if you look at it the right way, it's so empowering because otherwise you think you're at the mercy of this universal picker when it's not, you have so much power in the situation that you're just not recognizing. And so if you can recognize your part, because like, I can't control other people. I can't control what I can't control. What my husband does. I can control what I do. And then with the changes that I make, I change the energy. I shift the dynamic. For example, I was having some like stuff with my dad. I spent an hour talking to my therapist about it. I didn't tell my dad anything. I didn't change how I acted around my dad just me getting that stuff out and having some like little insights. Literally I have like just everything yep. w- within a couple of days, I have a completely different relationship. <laughs> it's wild. You'll never get to that place. If you don't recognize that it's you,
0: man, I could talk to you forever. I wanted to talk about family, that maybe I'll have you back on for, so I'm a- I have one yeah. question. So what, what are some of the most common questions that you get from followers I mean,
1: honestly, it's so funny. It changes from week to week, but I, there's always a theme of the week. Like, so I'll tell you today, like my theme, I do Q and A's on Thursday, so days Thursday. And the biggest question I got asked today was all about what do I do picturing my ex with someone new? Mm-hmm. Like, so that I get those kind of things. How do I know I'll never find I'll ever find someone as good as my ex. How <laughs> my favorite is like, I can't get over my ex. It's been a year. We talk every other day. Why am I not over them? And I'm like, come on. Um, so, so yeah, so I get, I mean, I get asked such a wide variety, but it all has to do with like not accepting the breakup. I would say like, I had to tell people your ex is allowed to move on. Just like you're allowed to move on. You guys are in two different lanes. Like you got to stay in your lane after going through this. Um, and a lot of it has to relate to like sobriety stuff. You know, it's like relationships are addictions. And we didn't get sober by having a glass of wine on Thursdays, Fridays, and Saturdays. We had to get sober by cutting it out completely. And so that's why I'm like a huge advocate of the no contact rule and just cutting completely out. So you're able to like actually get your feet back on the ground without the relationship.
0: So why don't you talk about all the different things, services, courses, everything that you offer?
1: Yeah. Yeah. So, um, I think the central hub for all my stuff is Instagram. You can find me at, at your breakup bestie. Um, I have four different online courses, depending on which stage of your breakup you're in, um, ranging from my breakup first aid kit when it first happens all the way into moving on after heartbreak of how to start getting back into dating. I have a 30 day no contact challenge that I run. Um, I have my podcast heal your heartbreak, which, I'm up to 80 plus episodes that you can binge if you're someone struggling. Um, And yeah, those are, that's what I got.
0: Well, that's awesome. Well, thank you so much.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: Well, that wraps up today's episode. As always, I hope you heard something that you could relate to and that can help you on your own journey. Thank you again to Kendra. That was amazing. Everyone, please check out the show notes for ways to reach her, contact her, um, you'll also find links to my social media on there. You can find me at Adult Child Pod on both Instagram and TikTok. And also, you can also find ways to contact me. I would love to hear from you. Hit a girl up. So on Thursday, I have two interviews that I'm doing. I am speaking with Tian Dayton, and then I'm also talking to Dr. Drew's daughter, Paulina. So I'm not sure which one will be next week, but it'll be one or the other. It's going to be good regardless. So I will see you shit shows then. It's going to be super raw. It's going to be super vulnerable. And I am super excited for y'all to hear it. It's going to be a goodie. I promise. I